Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 26, reading verses 57 to 68. So hear the word of the Lord, and may we hear it and receive it in faith. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is that that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you in, or by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Uh, on occasion, uh, there is a uh, phrase uh, repeated generally in the context of uh, some political issue that uh, uh, you need to uh, speak uh, truth uh, to power. Uh, this morning we're going to watch uh, or hear or listen to just that event as uh, Jesus will speak the word of God to a corrupt religious order and in the process validate his identity and uh, teaching us that we too must speak the word of God to corruption uh, essentially with the message of his identity. Uh, we are looking at uh, the passion of Christ. Uh, he's living it out for us uh, in his religious trial, in both process and witness. Let's begin first with uh, false religion as he's confronting false religion. And let's watch what he does and hear what he says uh, to that corrupt religion. Uh, Men, of course, uh, in their uh, false religions deny Christ. They deny his identity. And the denial here is in a parade of false witnesses. And that's the essence of verses 57 to the first part of the 63rd verse. So in this religious trial of the passion of our Lord, we have a parade of false witnesses. Uh, the text uh, in verse 59 reads that they were seeking false witness. 
of course, as a pretext uh, for a capital offense, in other words, to kill him. It's kind of ironic, is it not? Uh, religion seeking to kill, uh, and certainly false religion uh, seeks evil. In this case, they seek to kill uh, our Lord. Uh, but the stress uh, of the verbal action in verse uh, 59, that they were seeking false witnesses, is that of continuous action. So there's a determined pursuit on their behalf to find false witnesses. Uh, it's an echo, uh, in my mind, of the 27th Psalm. If you have your Old Testament, I trust you do. Turn to uh, the 27th Psalm. Uh, the uh, psalm is a psalm of praise. Uh, but looking at the 12th uh, verse, uh, the psalmist Christ, do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. Uh, the context of uh, this assertion is David's uh, confidence in our Lord in the midst of conflict. Let's listen to his confidence in the Lord in the midst of this great trial. Beginning uh, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. So David is in the midst of a trial of his faith, but he acknowledges his confidence in the Lord. The greater fulfillment is now in David's Lord caught in the vice of false religion and its agenda. But we know, of course, now that our Savior has his confidence in God, his Father. By the way, there's a wonderful application here. Uh, all of us throughout our lives will undergo various trials in different degrees, of course. The key is knowing the word of the Lord to keep and to stay you, because that's one of the reasons we give our lives to the reading, study, and the memory of the word of God. So in the midst of all of our trials, from whatever source they might come, we have a bedrock of confidence in the greatness of our God. Now, Matthew decisively states of their quest for a pretext, verse 60, that they found nothing. It speaks, of course, to the impeccable innocence of Christ, our Redeemer. That's essential to our salvation. Uh, because uh, had he ever broken the word of God, our salvation would have been lost forever. Uh, but he came, of course, to save his people. And as we study his life, and as we go and watch him throughout all of the trials of life, ending up at the cross, uh, we understand the depth of the wisdom of the grace of God that he was innocent of all things. He never failed. He never broke. He never sinned. He was faithful to the charge that God, his Father, gave to him, and therefore he is able to give his life a ransom, the one for the many. It's very instructive of this false process, of this false trial, this sham trial, that they found nothing. 
Let's shift now from false witnesses to false process. Every trial has a process. This one, of course, has one. But their process here is corrupt. Uh, Mosaic law decried the bearing of false witness. And that's essentially what they are about to do against uh, the Lord God of heaven. Furthermore, the trial was held at night, contravening their own legal process. According to their own law, you didn't hold trials at night, you held trials during the day. Illustrates their lust for power. In Mark's account, the testimony of the false witnesses didn't agree. Of course, in any standard of law, there must be a measure of consistency. They find no consistency, so again, the process is corrupt. It's a good reminder of... uh, the famous saying of Lord Acton, uh, if you don't have it memorized, you ought to, because it's something you'll see all of your life, and that is simply that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's really what we're watching here, a corruption of power uh, that's going to go to the uh, uh, degree of uh, confronting the Lord High God of heaven of crimes with which he is innocent. The irony, of course, is palpable. Jesus, the high priest of heaven, voluntarily is humiliating himself before a corrupt high priest. Uh, The latter is seeking a pretext for murder. Our high priest is winning our salvation. The steeled essence of our Savior undergoing this insanity uh, to win his people. It's a good reminder in the Advent season that we're not just here to uh, look at some beautiful uh, decorations, sing incredibly beautiful hymns, uh, but we are being reminded of the coming of God to save his people. And save, he will, and savior he is. Whether the entire Sanhedrin was present or not, we must assume that there was a quorum Uh, But these men were lawyers, knowledgeable Old Testament law. Uh, In the irony, they are confronting the greatest lawyer of all time who wrote the law. Illustration of the sham of their trial. Uh, Throwing the law at Christ as the ultimate lawyer, the author of the law itself. But again, he will live it out in its entirety in active obedience while they are breaking it both implicitly and explicitly. They represent false religion pretending to be true. You know, by the way, worth reminding ourselves in the church of Jesus Christ that there are many religions in the world in which we live, and they all claim to be true. But the moment they vacate Jesus Christ as the only redeemer of the people of God, they become sham pretenses. It's not my proclamation. It's the proclamation of the Word of God. Uh, God says there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. That's the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, All religion has its uh, litany of good works and good things to do and the pretense to be good and uh, on and on. But only the Christian faith has Christ, the only Redeemer, who changes hearts. And that's the essence of the truth of our faith. In my own estimation, Jesus is the righteous leader of a new exodus. 
He begins for us a new journey. He leads us on a new path. And of course, uh, our destiny is certain. Uh, John 14, 6 uh, reads, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Uh, without the right way, you're lost. Without the truth, you're deceived. And without the life of Christ, you are spiritually dead. Uh, they claim finally in finding a false witness, uh, someone stands up and says, uh, he said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it. But that in and of itself is a false claim. Uh, he did not claim to, to come and destroy the physical temple. Let's, let's turn to, uh, if you would, your New Testament, to the second chapter, Gospel of John, uh, where we have just this claim. Uh, John chapter 2, the 19th verse. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now look at verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. They're going to destroy his body and he will raise it in three days. They're latched on to a physical temple but he's going to raise up a true temple, a spiritual temple in himself, a temple made without hands. Because whatever men's hands make as a pretext for the worship of God is really idolatry. Christ is the true temple. He's inaugurating the end time temple by his selfless sacrifice upon the cross. It's very instructive to me that uh, most religions have some pilgrimage where they go to some temple somewhere, wherever it might be. You and I go to Jesus. He is the true temple. And absent him, uh, you're in the wrong place and you're a false worshiper. And Jesus, of course, uh, tells us in the Gospel of John, uh, God the Father seeks true worship. Uh, and of course, true worship has its end state in the Son, who is the true temple. So ironically, uh, they pervert his claim about the temple, but it is a reminder to us that their temple will soon be destroyed because they rejected uh, the Son of God. So false witness, false process, it's a... Uh, shift to true witness and true process, uh, explicitly extracting from the true witness of our Lord uh, his identity, because that's the most essential thing to capture in this entire text, the identity of Christ. Uh, true, true witness here is given by Christ because he's a divine witness, uh, second half of verse 63 through 68. Uh, the high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? It's a very explicit question uh, demanding that he uh, give an account of who he is. Uh, in Mark, Jesus says, I am. Here he says, it is as you say. Uh, of course, it's an 
explicit reference uh, of his affirmation that he is God. Uh, so much so that the high priest says, you've committed blasphemy. Uh, they are telling us in and of itself that his claim is true because uh, they are accusing him of blasphemy and uh, seeking in that blasphemous act uh, the pretext uh, for what you and I know is murder. Because his claim is true. Uh, he affirms and validates the claim. Uh, Jesus says God cannot lie and bear false witness, but his answer is more expansive for us. Uh, the first is in the irony of the event. Uh, and here we, we come to embrace the reality of uh, the truth of the identity of Christ. Uh, we read verse 57, that they were gathered together. Uh, it's an echo in my mind of the psalm that we began our worship service uh, with, Psalm 2. Uh, verse 2 of the Psalter, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together. It's exactly what's happening now, being reduplicated in the life of the Savior. Uh, the context of Psalm 2 is an insurrection against God's anointed Davidic king, King David. And what's the response of heaven? Do you remember from the reading of the text that it summoned us to worship? What does heaven do? Uh, is heaven worried? Is heaven calling for counselors? Is, is heaven saying, uh, get the uh, Secretary of Defense on the line, I, I better build my army? No, but what is the response of heaven to someone uh, trying to establish an insurrection against God's anointed one? We, we, you know the answer to that, don't we? Heaven laughs. It's an incredible assertion. I mean, how can you ever think that you could dethrone someone who God placed upon the throne without God working? I mean, you can't. It's impossible. In this case, uh, uh, heaven, heaven reminds David, the one in verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Heaven says, I have a decree. The decree is that you are my son. You are going to reign and finish your reign. Uh, verse 8, you will rule them. Uh, pardon me. And, and, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your inheritance. You will ruin them with a rod of iron and dash them to destroy them. Of course, David fulfills that in his life, but the greater fulfillment is now in Christ. And that God is going to give Christ, the Son of God, for his faithfulness, the entire dominion of the created order. And he will rule over everything and everyone. Every piece of speck of dust, of geography, wherever its latitude and longitude is, belongs now to the Savior. He owns it. Every blade of grass, every person that's ever been birthed belongs to him because he is the true fulfillment of the Davidic kingship and the Davidic covenant. And, and therefore, heaven is validating David's sonship and God's covenant in a perpetual rule that can never be broken. I mean, I understand in, in the, the world in which you and I live, there are many rulers Many armies, many navies, but they come and go, don't they? 
There's only one perpetual rule that can never be broken. It's a parallel rule that's really governing everything. As you know, the psalm closes with a summons for kings and rulers to be wise and humbling themselves before God's anointed one that now has its greatest of all fulfillment in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Again, it's, it's an implicit polemic against every other religion save that uh, which points to Christ as the only Redeemer because He is the only God and the only Redeemer uh, acceptable for God the Father. Uh, Psalm 2 is uh, uh, indirectly messianic, has an immediate fulfillment in David, but it breaks upon the greater David, Christ our Lord. Its greater fulfillment is in Jesus. Now, the irony of the Psalter is uh, it's a summons of destruction upon Gentile kings. And so, who are the rulers now accusing Christ but Gentile kings pretending to be rulers under God that God, uh, of course, will destroy? Uh, in Matthew, it's the Sanhedrin that is now the enemy of God facing wrath. Jesus is the greater king whose perpetual rule is the basis for men to bow in submission. Uh, it's difficult, I think, for Americans to fully comprehend uh, the absolute monarchy of the Scripture. Uh, but uh, for the Christian church, uh, we have one king, and that is God, God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Uh, and his rule is absolute and forever. And of course, we give to him willing allegiance because of who he is uh, and what he uh, has done for us uh, upon the cross. The second illusion, validating the identity of Christ as he uh, is speaking uh, truth to the corrupt uh, religious power of the Sanhedrin, uh, is in Matthew 26, 64, uh, an allusion to Psalm 110, uh, that you will see the Son of God uh, coming from the right hand of God. Uh, again, comes from the Psalter, uh, Psalm 110. Simply, I'm going to read uh, the first verse of Psalm 110 because Christ is alluding to it in his answer to the Sanhedrin. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. So David here is acknowledging a greater Lord that we now know is Christ uh, that's going to take his seat at the right hand of God the Father. This text, I believe, is directly messianic. And the New Testament authors cite this psalm repeatedly in reference to the resurrection and ascension of Christ because he's the great conquering king who has now conquered death and goes to take his seat at the right hand of God. Uh, it means that our Lord has ascended to the heavenly throne to take his seat next to the Father. The locale and the proximity means that he can only do this because he is God himself, that he possesses all of the attributes of the heavenly Father because he himself is God, God the Son. 
And to take his seat next to God the Father means that he must be God the Son. The locale and the proximity means that he is divine. And because he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father means that the Father has rewarded him for his majesty of his submission and humiliation. It is a reward that will expand and intensify until every enemy in all geography is seen visibly before all of humanity. It's occurring now, but we just simply don't see it. But we know spiritually it is happening, it is advancing, it is overtaking everything, and one day it will become visible. That is the hope of the church tied to the resurrection of Christ. This is God's process. Paul says of this that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. Paul speaking of Christ, fulfilling, of course, the event of Psalm 110, verse 1. The psalm is a promise that the Father will reward Jesus, the great king priest that he is. That Jesus applies this psalm to himself. As he answers the Sanhedrin, you will see Son of Man coming from the right hand of God the Father is a statement of Christology. The pristine beauty, purity, and clarity that Christ knew who he was as the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, to extend the rule of, uh, of God over all of the earth and every creature. He's under divine appointment, and he's going to effect it. As God, he succeeds and cannot do otherwise. The third illusion, you will see the Son of Man seated to the right hand, uh, coming. Allusion to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. As you know, as we've gone through Matthew, I've repeatedly uh, affirmed that this is our Lord's most favorite designation of himself, the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, uh, 13th verse. In my vision uh, at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now the context of Daniel 7 is of four evil kingdoms that do harm to the people of God, but God has his kingdom that will prevail and conquer them. And Jesus, as you know, repeatedly uses the reference of the son of man as referring to himself. And by identifying himself in this way, Jesus is acknowledging that he has received the reward of his father in defeating every earthly kingdom. And therefore, God says of him, Daniel 7, verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I mean, contextually, that is what Jesus is answering to the Sanhedrin. I am the Son of Man, and the Father is giving me this reward. Meaning that his dominion will sweep them out of power and destroy them on his way to gather his people. It's a reminder that anything that gets in the way of the glory and the majesty of Christ will be swept aside as he gathers his people.
the reference to the, to the clouds in verse 64, coming on the clouds, is another designation of divinity or deity. Again, Christ is telling the Sanhedrin as he is speaking truth to their corrupt power uh, that he is divine, the divine person sent on a divine mission. Uh, the clouds uh, are a reference in the Old Testament to the divine presence. Uh, we all remember, of course, the uh, uh, book of Exodus, uh, the divine cloud over Mount Sinai, Moses going up into the divine cloud, meaning that he's uh, going to meet with the divine presence. Uh, in uh, Isaiah chapter 19, uh, verse 1, uh, we read, See the Lord rides on a swift cloud. Uh, secular Jewish literature would oftentimes refer to God as the cloud rider. It's kind of beautiful, beautiful illustration, the majesty of God, the one riding upon the clouds. We look up into the beautiful sky, we see these massive clouds. God is riding them. And sometimes it's spurring his horse as the single rider of divinity spurs his horse and the most terrible storms come and visit the earth and incredible destruction the force of winds which no one can stand against, or lightning, or the surging of the oceans, reminder of the very power of God. I've, I've gone to those camps as little boys. They put you on some ancient horse that couldn't hurt a flea. You spur it on thinking you're some majestic rodeo rider, and you know nothing happens, but the horse looks at you like, who are you, little pipsqueak on my back? I'm not going to rear up. Do you? But again, uh, the rider on the clouds over all of the earth uh, doing the will of God, Jesus tells the Sanhedrin, I'm that rider. Again, going back to Isaiah, see the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. Uh, oh, that the weatherman really knew. what they speak of when they reference in their weather reports the coming of great clouds. But now you and I know, don't we? The writer on the clouds, none other than the majesty of God, divine presence. And so God is so identifying himself in this way that Jesus is now the divine presence, the statement of eschatology, because he is coming again to defeat his enemies. That's why in the Isaiah, uh, Isaiah context that the idols of Egypt are trembling and the Egyptian, their hearts are trembling. Coming of God, the coming of the Son of Man. Their defeat, of course, given who he is, is certain inev in, and inevitable. It's a broadcast of uh, the future. When I say eschatology, that's a study of the doctrine of future things. The eschaton, the study of the eschaton, Christ is going to come riding upon the clouds and in his armies he will destroy everything that does not belong to him uh, by way of confession of faith, uh, a follower of Christ.
uh, simply tell the world who rejects the Savior that they cannot win, they will not win. Uh, because uh, he who comes from the right hand of God the Father, who is the Son of Man, uh, owns everything. And uh, he will come uh, to save his people and uh, destroy everything that does not belong to him. It's an implicit reminder to the Sanhedrin that they don't really know who they're messing with. But he does. It's reminded to us as the church that he is speaking truth to corrupt religious power and validating his identity for us so we can understand the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Christ is. It's, he is not just another religious name. He's not just uh, one among many. Uh, he is the only God, the only Savior, the only King. And that is the testimony he is uh, giving to the Sanhedrin and for that, he will go to the cross. Uh, ironically, uh, there he will die for the sins of his people and conquer death for us as uh, the greatest uh, power of all of history. Uh, good reminder again of the gospel. The last illusion is something of a very indirect illusion, uh, perhaps a conceptual illusion to the great servant songs of Isaiah. Uh, uh, verse 67 of Matthew 26, and they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him. Uh, of course, they, you know, they, they, they mock him. Uh, but all of this, again, foretold by the great prophets uh, that the Son of Man would come and suffer at the hands of evil men. Uh, the Sanhedrin's treatment of Jesus identifies him as the true servant of God. Very, it's very ironic here that there are these allusions to Isaiah because the nation was to be a servant, but they forsook their service and idolatry. So God comes in the last great final servant of God to fulfill it in its entirety. It's a good reminder that we should have the greatest of confidence in God our Savior through Christ. Uh, simply going to read a couple of uh, texts from the great servant songs, Isaiah chapter 50, the sixth verse. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Think of it. He's God subjecting himself to that maltreatment. Perhaps the last and the greatest, Isaiah 53. Uh, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, he was esteemed not. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was trust for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. The sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You know, by the way, I, I, I'm reminded of one of the great blessings of the United States of America. We have you know, incredible medical technology and uh, physicians and nurses and institutions of healing. 
But sadly enough, they're all going to fail. Uh, there's only one man who's gotten out of this world alive, uh, notwithstanding uh, Enoch and the prophet Elisha, but that by the providence of God, and that's the God-man Jesus Christ. By his wounds, we are healed. He will heal every one of us. By his sufferings. Uh, I don't know when he's going to do that, by the way. For many of us, it may be at his second coming. <laughs> but in a moment, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall be changed, healed forever never to suffer again from a disease, from a stroke, from a cold, for whatever, a hangnail. He will heal us all. Nothing will be left undone because of the majesty of his person. By his wounds, we will be healed. I can't tell you when. He may heal you of something in this life. Praise God that he does. But if he doesn't, he'll get you in the end, and you'll praise him all the more. The grandeur and the majesty of Christ in all of his actions. You know, perhaps... Uh, uh, the last and the greatest, uh, Isaiah 53, verse 12. Uh, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life into death and was numbered with the transgressions. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The Sanhedrin wants to know who this man is standing before them. Now we know because of true testimony as he speaks the truth of the word of God to corrupt power. It is a reminder by way of application, uh, a measure to how to go through some of our trials in life to remember who Christ is and therefore to have a heart full of peace and joy and love. In light of what he went through, uh, we go through sometimes corrupt processes and trials. Our Savior did. We can be comforted. He won, and because we are in him, in the end we will win. But it also forms something of the content of what we are to say in our own trials. How do we respond? Well, sometimes we get angry or we want revenge. And, and again, there are certainly many occasions for anger, but it's also good to remember what Christ said. We know from Psalm 27, there's confidence in the Lord. Though armies come to attack him, he knows that God will save him. He knows he will rise from the dead and defeat death. He's the only redeemer beyond the grave. Every other shepherd turns back at the grave but him, the one true shepherd. It's a reminder uh, to understand the processes we go through and the content sometimes of what we should say. Christ is my Savior and Redeemer. Though men destroy my flesh, yet, Job says, I will see God. That's, that's who we are in light of who He is. It's a great illustration of... Uh, of, uh, of this in our, our Trinity hymnal. Uh, the uh, hymnist uh, speaks truth to us to remind us of uh, who it is that we come to worship in this Advent season. 
we simply recall a few, a few words of uh, great hymn in light of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Oh, worship the King. All glorious above. Oh, gratefully sing his power and his love. Pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. The word speaks to us in the power of truth. So does the hymnist to give us courage and to give us a witness in our own daily walk as we encounter a corrupt world and wonder what should we say to a corrupt world. This is what we say. Christ is my king. He'll protect and defend and keep me and preserve me. And at the end of the day, all of us will see him visibly when he comes for us to call us into his everlasting presence and to change everything about us in eternal glory. That's the truth reminding a corrupt world of who Christ is. And may God so bless us uh, in this Advent season uh, in light of the identity of our only Savior. Amen.